0: Maybe we're even imposing on others those biblical standards that we have. That's exactly what the Judaizers were doing to these Galatian churches. They were imposing Jewish law on those Galatian, mostly Gentile believers. I think there's a tendency in all of us to tend to look to our own good works for affirmation in the Christian life there's also the tendency that we have to look to ourselves for strength to live the Christian life. And our passage tonight that I want us to focus particularly on addresses each of those tendencies, those legalistic tendencies that we have to look to ourselves for affirmation measured by our good works, and then also our tendencies to just try to do better in our own strength live the Christian life. The text that I want us to look at Tonight is Galatians 5. Turn over maybe one page or a couple of swipes. Galatians 5, verse 16 through 26. Perhaps familiar, but I want to, in light of our overview that we looked at last week, that we'll look at briefly tonight, look at this passage in its context of the overall book. Galatians 5, verse 16 says this But I say, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. "...is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk or keep in step with the Spirit." Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's pause and ask for the Lord's help to understand and apply this passage tonight. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your word that is sufficient for all things. I pray that you would... um, Help us by your spirit to understand, would would the one who breathed it out in the first place give us illumination tonight to better understand and apply uh, the truth that we study tonight. We ask for your help in that. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. Last week, just to run through, if you weren't here last week or you didn't completely remember every single thing that we looked at next week, a brief overview of the book of Galatians. The, the historical context of this passage was that this was written to young, mostly Gentile believers, non-Jewish believers in Galatia, which is the this, this southernmost part of Galatia, probably modern Turkey. This church was begun in 46 to 47 AD. This letter was written probably a year later. The first letter that Paul ever wrote to any church or group of churches was this one. The problem that he was addressing are these supposedly Christian Jews that were imposing Jewish requirements on Gentile believers. Under this guise of Christianity... They were specifically telling the Galatian believers, among other things, that they needed to be circumcised to follow the Mosaic law to continue in true Christianity. They would say their name the the, the name of this group of people would have been the Judaizers, those that would say to be saved, you have to kind of become Jewish, even if you weren 't born a Jew, you need to become Jewish and follow all of these laws and, and Paul says that they were troubling and unsettling these young Gentile Christians. The new covenant, the church, had just begun. I mean, if you're thinking AD 46, 47, that's 15 years ago that Christ died, right? Uh, Less than 15 years ago, very young church. And it's a very transitional time in the nature of how God was relating to man, So it's understandable these problems are happening, and Paul, unlike any of his other letters that he writes to any other churches or any of his letters to uh, pastors, he doesn't have anything good to say at the beginning. He just gets after it. He's like, we've got a serious problem that we need to address. Why specifically was Galatians written, specifically the distortion of the gospel if you're looking for a reference, there, verses six and seven of chapter one, he says that uh, the the these legalizing Judaizers were distorting the gospel of Christ. That's the specific problem. That's why it's so serious. The legalism of the Judaizers—they were imposing strict religious observances on people in order to garnish God's to garner God's favor. That was messing with the gospel. That is gospel plus in order to be a Christian. That's not the gospel. And so, understandably then, Paul makes an argument that the ground of acceptance before God is faith in Christ alone. That's what he's going to argue for throughout the book. He makes a personal argument in the first couple of chapters. The middle two chapters is more or less a doctrinal argument. Salvation is only by grace through faith. And then at the end of the book, chapters 5 and 6, he speaks to the topic of living in Christian freedom. But all throughout the book, he's making this argument in particular. And so the theme that we landed at and arrived at last week is the theme that Paul is trying to address. He is attempting to safeguard the truth of the gospel, something that he mentions in chapter 2, verse 5 and verse 14. And he spells that out. And if you want to, if you're just ticking off how many times certain words are used, you see quickly what Paul is after. Um, Justification. By grace through faith, wrought by the Spirit. Justification by faith alone that is accomplished by the Spirit and that is lived out, as we'll see tonight, by the Spirit. That's the theme of the book. So that's kind of where, where the, the whole picture of the book is addressing. And so we're going to, the, the passage that we looked at tonight is specifically addressing a command. In the first couple of verses, we're in this practical section of the book, living in Christian freedom. And if you want to categorize or put an overview statement of chapter five, all the way through verse 10 of chapter six, it would be this freedom in Christ is lived out by the spirit. Freedom in Christ is lived out by the spirit. And so that's why in verse 13 of chapter five, he says, for you were called to freedom brothers, after some pretty strong language to those that were uh, unsettling these young believers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Use your freedom in Christ, not for more license to sin, Um, use it to focus on one another. And so in verses 16 through 18, he's got a command. And we see that this command, I'll just give it to you. If we were to summarize verses 16 through 18, go along with the spirit and not your flesh. Let's look at it. Verse 16, but I say, Paul says, in contrast to the division that's happening in verse 15, you're biting and devouring one another. Watch out, they're not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He's just mentioned those fleshly desires that are evidencing themselves in disunity and and fighting with one another. Walk by the Spirit. Walk around. Conduct your life. It's a It's a very frequently used analogy in scripture for the Christian life. Walking one step at a time. And he says, how are you to walk the Christian life? By the Spirit. Now does that mean next to the Spirit? Like by the walk, by the spirit, or does that mean more of a an idea of uh, by His power? What's going on there? Well, if we were to keep on reading in verse eighteen, he talks about the spirit's influence as well. Verse eighteen, he says, "But if you are led by the spirit," and then down in verse twenty-five, he mentioned as again, "If we live by the spirit, let us also walk by the spirit." It's a little bit of both. We're keeping in step with the spirit. But we're also being guided, led by him. So it's a little bit of both. That is how we are to, the, to, to walk by the Spirit. Led by the Spirit, keeping in step. Now, this mention of the Spirit, sometimes we come to this passage, particularly we come to verses 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit, right? We're very familiar with that. Wow, Paul's just talking about this new concept of the Spirit. But really, in the letter, he's mentioned the Spirit a bunch of times before this He's not just first telling them about this Holy Spirit. In verse 2 of chapter 3, he says, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Verse 3 of chapter three, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you so? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Verse five: Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing by, with faith? Verse fourteen of chapter three: of chapter three, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Verse six of chapter four: And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your, our hearts, crying. Abba, Father, verse 29 of chapter 4, but just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. Verse 5 of the chapter that we're in, chapter 5, 5, for through the Spirit by faith we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. So he is talking a lot about the spirit in this book. He's reminding them what apparently they already know, that when they were saved, they received the indwelling spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit. And that spirit was working miracles in them. It was working in their hearts that they felt to, it's, it's my right, it's just natural in me now to call out to God the Father, Abba, Father. That's what God has done inside of them. And so he's going along and just picking up what he's already been talking about, assuming that they already know who the Holy Spirit is and that he dwells within them. And after this, he only mentions the Holy Spirit twice more uh, just in, in one verse in chapter 6, for the one who sows to his own flesh, in verse 8, will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows the Spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life. So he's been mentioning it a lot, and he mentions it a lot, a lot in our passage tonight. So, verse 17, after this command to keep in step with, to go along with the Spirit, verse 17, he says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the, des- and the desires of the Spirit are against The flesh. They surely knew what that was like on the inside of them. That almost reminds us of what Paul talked about with the inner struggle in Romans 7. I know what I'm supposed to do, but I I, I can't do it. And I know what I'm not supposed to do, but I find myself wanting to do it. Paul is here saying that that is related to the flesh that we have and the indwelling spirit that we have. For these, he says, are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, what are the things you want to do? Is this a spirit-led believer doing, wanting to do good things, so the flesh keeps him from that? Or is this a f- more fleshly, gi- giving into his flesh believer, wanting to do fleshly things, but the spirit is pulling him back? It's probably both. Uh, one, one writer says this, it's like this. Does the man choose evil? The spirit opposes him. Does he choose good? The flesh hinders him. There's this inner struggle. If I'm in my flesh, I want to do sin. And now, though, since I'm saved, I have the indwelling spirit that says, no, you shouldn't be doing that. There's a conviction of sin. If I'm walking by the spirit and I'm tempted toward the flesh, there's the flesh that says, come on, you you want to do this. And there's part of me that doesn't want to do what's right. He's talking about this inner struggle. That we have if we are led by the Spirit. If we're actually saved, there's a new struggle that probably didn't used to be there. There's actually a fight, a a conviction, a fight against sin. The unsaved person, there's not a struggle. They just do it. Maybe they have outer reasons why they feel like they shouldn't. But there's not an inner struggle against sin. The believer actually has the spirit within him that's going to fight against sin. That's going to actually convict. And Paul is noting that for these Galatian believers. Verse 18, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now, in place of the word law, what word do you think he would have used? If you're just reading through this, he hasn't mentioned the law recently. He has in the overall context of the book. But he's been talking about what? The spirit and the the flesh. You would think that that's what he would have said there. But if you were led by the spirit, you were not under the flesh that we've just been talking about this inner struggle. But Paul uses law instead. And he's probably showing that it's still this original law imposition, this original legalism that he was addressing the church about that These Judaizers are wanting you to shape up and live in adherence to the law. And he says, but if you're led by the spirit, you're not under that anymore. And there's a connection with the law and the flesh. They're, they're related. If you're going to try to live the law in your own power, your flesh is going to manifest its own ugly head, which is one of the designs of the law to show us that we are sinners, to show us the ugliness Of our flesh and how strong it is inside of us. The law has no power to curb the flesh. And that's what Paul is drawing our attention to in verse 18. The first command that he gives is go along with the Spirit and not your flesh. But then in verses 19 to 23, he transitions to asking the question well, what does that look like? How would I know if I am? going along with the spirit or if I am going along with the flesh it was a couple uh, maybe about a month ago or so one of our children was evidencing signs of sickness and we didn't know what exactly the problem was we called an on call doctor um, or uh, maybe it was um, an RN I forget who it was but we, we talked to her and you know what she didn't say when we first called her and finally put her through to the on call nurse or whatever she didn't say, "Okay, what medication would you like?" No, I mean, hopefully, she's not going to say that. She, what did she start to do before she ever prescribed any sort of treatment or, you know, telling us what the problem might be or what medicine we need or what we need to do? She started asking questions. Um, how has your child been feeling? Is he? Uh, is he? Ooh, I gave it away. Um, is is your child evidencing? You know, this, what's the temperature, Um, how long has he kept food, all of these things. She was asking and noting symptoms. And what we see in verses 19 through 24 are symptoms that point us to diagnose properly. Before that nurse was going to give us, uh, these are your next steps, she needed to understand what the actual problem was. That's what we see in verses 19 through 23, more or less a diagnosis. What's it going to look like to walk by the Spirit? Negatively, Paul first notes what it's not going to look like if you're walking in the Spirit. What does it look like ultimately for someone to try to live by the law in the power of the flesh? And Paul says in verse 19, it's going to be obvious. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, In contrast to walking in the spirit, somebody walking in their flesh, it's going to be obvious. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. First, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. And those are probably related. Uh, if, If we want to zoom out on the whole list of the works of the flesh, you could say the first three are more sexual in nature. And it's interesting that Paul would head the list with this. And then there's a couple in the middle idolatry and sorcery that are more spiritual related and then the last 10 of them are more social sins that's also interesting that there's so many of them that are more or less social sins and what he's saying in a a broad stroke is a false gospel ultimately is going to lead to flesh enabled sinful fruits sinful works in particular that he says here And it's interesting, he's already talked about by the works of the law shall no one be justified, he says in chapter 2. It's very similar terminology right here. Here are the works of the flesh that's related to the works of the law. If that's the way you're going to try to live your Christian life, eventually you're not going to be able to live the way you know you ought to. The works of the flesh will be manifested. Sexual immorality, a general term for any kind of sin in that category. Impurity, the idea of being morally loose or unclean. Sensuality, this is just without regard to anything that's right, a lifestyle that's given over to sexual sin. No regard for God, no regard for man, no shame. There's a lot more of that that's evidencing itself, I would say, now than there was even just 20 years ago. Those are works of the flesh, a lot of sensuality, no shame in that. And then more spiritual sins, he mentions in verse 20, idolatry, worship of that which is not God. Sorcery, and, and this, uh, this word originally had the idea of the use of drugs that were used in, the, in, in witchcraft, Interestingly, something that's on the rise today. You say, well, people just don't believe in the supernatural anymore. Not really. They're more in tune to that now in the last 10 years than they have been for a long time. Sorcery, delving into the other world, so to speak. Something, of course, that the God of this world is delighted that that's more on the rise and people are messing with that. Spiritual sins, that will be evidences, those will be evidences of the flesh, works of the flesh. And then he moves on to enmity, into this new category that takes up the the fattest part of this list. Enmity, hateful attitudes, which lead then to strife, to jealousy, hatefully desiring what someone else has. Fits, or you could say outbursts of anger. Those four then lead to the next four, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. That's all a bunch of one another, not the good one another's, the bad one another's. My flesh evidencing itself in anger, all sorts of different things. One one author said these, these four rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, they represent animosities between individuals and groups that sometimes continue to fester and grow long after the original cause of conflict has passed. Then he moves into drunkenness which would inevitably give way to orgies and things like these. And and again that reminds us that this list isn't exhaustive. Okay, the, this was happening over here but thankfully it wasn't in Paul's list of works of the flesh, so it's you know, kind of okay. or No, he says the normal thinking person, particularly a believer that has a spirit, is going to know what other things that might not be included in this list would be counted as works of the flesh. I warn you, he says, as I warned you before, as he's been talking about, or perhaps as he talked about in person with them, as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And 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 it's it's likely that he's referring to perhaps some of the dissensions and divisions and envy and rivalries of the Judaizers themselves, because that's what he's already warned about up in verse fifteen. But if you divide and if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed. He's been going after these legalistic Judaizers a lot because of how they're troubling and unsettling. And so in this context, he's saying that is a work of the flesh. Beware, that is not of God if it is stirring up this kind of division. Now, at the end of that verse, did, did something unsettle you a little bit? At the end of verse 21, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The key word there is do, right? If you've ever done any of these things, will you then not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, the key word there, do, is, has the sense of that which is ongoing which is why your your bible might have a footnote that that says those who practice such things other translations render it similarly those who make it a habitual lifestyle this is their way of life now they don't you don't have to do all of those 15 things i think it is to know that you're unsaved if you make a practice of them he said these are various works of the flesh If you're ongoingly, habitually involved in these things, if any one of these things, you don't have a right to say that you're going to inherit the kingdom of God. A false gospel evidences the works of the flesh. Flesh Flesh-enabled sinful fruits. A false gospel will never lead one to inherit the kingdom of God. So let this list be, as Paul is showing it to be here, diagnostic. Let it be diagnostic for you. Do these works of the flesh characterize you? Are there things that you just persist in without conviction? I mean, I know some of those things I shouldn't do, and I have enough, you know, common sense in the world to know that I shouldn't be doing those things, but some of these things, I, that's just where I find myself all the time. Paul says if that characterizes you, you don't have the right to say that you are saved. He goes on, well, h- positively then, how would I know what a work of the Spirit is? There's a true gospel that evidences itself in Spirit-enabled fruit, the, the, the familiar verses for us. And it's interesting, Paul here, he doesn't say, do these things. You Galatians, make sure you do love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He's not, that's not the context here. The context is more in exhorting them, notice, if you are enabled by the Spirit, if you are actually saved, you will find yourself increasingly growing in these things. He's not commanding them to do them. Now, that doesn't mean that Paul and the rest of the Testament doesn't say, work on these things. Because we're commanded elsewhere, and each of these things elsewhere in the New Testament, we're commanded to love one another, to to evidence a love for one another, joy, peace, patience. We could go through all of these and show where they're commanded elsewhere, but that's not what Paul's getting after here. He's saying this is an evidence of those that are enabled by the Spirit. He's diagnosing. Notice he doesn't say the works of the Spirit. That's what he said earlier. He said the works of the flesh, maybe those works of the law, noting out that. He says it's fruit. Fruit, that which is produced by someone, by the indwelling spirit. And it's actually a singular fruit of the spirit. And you don't have to know Greek to know, well, sometimes I refer to, that was a lot of good fruit that I had recently. Well, I was saying that was plural. Is Paul saying this? Well, the the grammar even translated for us says the fruit is... Love, joy, peace, and it lists all these things. So it's the idea that the, he doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit are, and if you have any one of these things, then you know you're, you know, you're good. No, he says the fruit of, these, of the Spirit is, and then he lists out what, in a sense, is on the cluster of fruit. Each believer's evidence of the indwelling Spirit will be this entire cluster of fruit. It's not like the Spirit's gifts that are listed elsewhere in the New Testament, where each believer has at least one. What's your gift? Well, I've been told I have one, and I'm going to try to figure out what that is. Well, what fruit do I have from the Spirit? Ah, mine is patience. I'm not just good at any of the other ones, really, but mine is patience. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the believer will have all of these things in some measure that God is increasing in his life. What does the cluster of fruit include? The fruit of the Spirit, and we're not going to have a whole message on each of these, but we'll, we'll walk through them. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And that heads the list. You could say it's the supreme virtue. And really, all of the rest of them can find their way back to this particular one. And it's the particular one that he specifically mentions up in verse 14. Of chapter 5, he's just reminded us that the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And in verse 13, he contrasts freedom to be fleshly? No, 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 no. You now have the freedom to, through love, serve one another. He has this much in mind. So an others-focused love is probably the what Paul has in mind here. He's not saying, oh, is this love for God or love from God? Or It's probably an other-focused love, just in context of the letter that he's writing. A love that sacrifices for the good of others. And it's also not just... It, the word is agape, in case you're, oh, okay, which, which of the three words for love is used here? It's agape, but it's not just this emotionless, I will sacrifice and dutifully love one another. As painful as it's going to be. It includes the brotherly aspect of it. It includes affection for others. And that's also included in that, that word for agape. That will characterize increasingly the true believer that has the spirit working in him. It also has joy. A deep-seated happiness that's based on being right with God. Knowing that you can call out to Abba, Father. Father right that there's this there's this relational joy that i have toward the father and also toward others knowing what's true about god gives me a deep-seated happiness based on my relationship with him then there's also peace an inner disposition of calm that's based on the same thing as joy being right with god and it's not necessarily here Peace, peace with God, as in I now have a relationship with God, that wouldn't make as much sense to say this is one of the evidences, a growing peace. Well, the peace that we have with God is settled if we have it. This is a peace that's an inner disposition over against all the social strife that's mentioned in the prior works of the flesh here. Peace also includes that which comes from being right with others. I have peace with God, so I can have peace in my heart, and that will look like living peaceably with all men, as Paul later uh, elsewhere says in Romans 12. There's also patience, patience that endures under ongoing provoking, being slow to anger. The the King James Version renders it long-suffering, or the NIV says forbearance. Forbearance with others. There's kindness, being helpful or beneficial to someone. There's a there's a tenderness associated with that word. We're not just going around doing all the right things and get out of my way because I'm trying to busy you know, be busy doing stuff for God. There's a kindness, there's a tender care for one another that a spirit led believer will have. There's a goodness in, a, in a sense, the kind heart will evidence itself then in goodness. There's a generosity of heart that actually acts. In verse ten of chapter six: Let us do good to those. What does he say? To all people, to everyone, and especially, or you could probably translate it specifically, those who are of the household of faith. A goodness that has evidence. Uh, Doing good things for my brothers and sisters in Christ. That is one of the one of the grapes on the cluster, if you will, of the fruit of the Spirit. Faithfulness, loyalty, fidelity, being trustworthy. That's the kind of person in, in Psalm 15 who, because he fears God, he swears to his own hurt and doesn't change. He follows through on his obligations. Oh, something kind of hard came up, so I'm just going to bail on that commitment that I made to that other believer. No, a, a believer that's walking in the Spirit will k- increasingly be faithful. There's a gentleness, or, or some translations that I think render it meekness. Meekness, not weakness, but meekness. Strength under control, you've perhaps heard. that It doesn't assert itself for its own ends. We're working on uh, a male child of ours that we use our muscles to help others, not to hurt them. We, we restrain our strength, and that evidence is actually a greater strength than giving into my fleshly impulse. Strength under control, and it's not based on personality. Well, I'm just not a gentle, I'm just not a meek person. Sorry, I, I get a pass on this one. It's not personality-based. It's all of God's people evidence this gentleness that's based on submissiveness to God and his ways. The meekness is challenged when somebody asks me to do something that I don't want to do and I just want to say all the reasons why this was a bad idea or whatever it might be. Meekness recognizes God is in control. And so I'm going to place myself under his design for me right now. I'm not going to say everything that comes to my mind. I'm going to have strength and control that which I want to naturally unleash which is related to the next one, self-control, self-restraint. It's not giving in to whatever impulses and desires well up inside of you. Somebody says, well, I I just don't know what came over me. Well, Paul says, he knows what came over you. It was your flesh. That wasn't the spirit that came over you when you unleashed on somebody with your verbal attack. The real sinful you came over you is what that was. You didn't let the spirit restrain you. You didn't let the spirit help help you exercise self-control. This all is a picture of Christ. Um, a couple of weeks ago we looked on Sunday morning at the temptation of Christ. And what's interesting about that is that the Spirit is the one that led him into the wilderness. The key to his overcoming temptation wasn't just because he's God. Well, of course he's gonna resist temptation. The key that Luke draws our attention to in Luke's account of that is that he was led by the Spirit. He was perfectly walking in step with the Spirit. That is why Christ looked the way he did. He did not give into his flesh's temptations, even though he was in all points tempted, like as we are yet without sin. Paul says this must have been only by the power of the Spirit that he completely kept in step with. Christ perfectly exhibited all of these things, and he lists them all, and then he says at the end of verse twenty three, "Against such things there is no law." And in one sense, you could say, "Well, there's no law that says that I shouldn't be gentle uh, if I'm going to, you know, try to obey the laws of the land and I'm going to try to be kind." That might be what he has in mind here, but the idea is that legally, believers are already justified. We're already counted righteous. There's nothing of this fruit of the Spirit that would ever go against the law anyway, right? Uh, one, One pastor said this, we're not gaining more acceptance by how we work. We're simply working in the light of the acceptance that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I am free in Christ, because I have the spirit inside of me, that's going to work itself out in this cluster of fruit. There's nothing that there's none of those things go against God's law in the first place. There's a command. There's a diagnosis. And then he in a sense, he zooms out. He, he says, OK, here's the context of these things. I'll, I'll review for you and I'll place them in context of the whole book. And the context is this live as you began the Christian life. Verse 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If you are in Christ, if you belong to Christ, the flesh's ownership of you has ended. It has been killed, it has been murdered, it has been crucified. Instead of the flesh's passions and desires, the fruit of the spirit now characterizes your life. And he's used similar terminology in the book before in chapter 2 in verse 19 and 20. He says, "For for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You could say it this way. You are dead to the flesh's bondage. And that's in context of the book that he's also reminded of about their flesh and the tendencies toward that. And particularly the tendencies toward the flesh that these Judaizers are are stirring up in the church. Verse 25, continue by the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, Paul says, which is true of all Christians, We've received new life by the Spirit. That is how we can say that we are alive. It's that the Spirit has regenerated us. If that's true, and it is for believers, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. You're following Him. You're walking alongside Him. So it's interesting. If some people would say, well, I have this decision to make. And I just don't know what I should do here. I just I'm just waiting for the Spirit to guide me. I just need to follow the Spirit. I need to be led by the Spirit to make this decision, as as the wording is in this passage. The contest, the context of this passage doesn't let you quote those kinds of things about your decision. Being led by the Spirit for this particular decision has nothing to do with this passage. What we are as Christians. What we, are, what we as Christians are to be keeping in step with is the Spirit's work of producing in us this godly fruit. What the Spirit uses is not just, you know, some, you know, some version of an impulse or a feeling that we have. The Spirit, His work is to produce this fruit in us. Elsewhere, what, what, is, what does Paul talk about in Ephesians 6 in terms of fighting sin? He says something about the Spirit. He says that the Spirit uses something. The sword of the Spirit, which is what? Which is the Word of God. That's what the Spirit uses. So if you, had a, 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 if you have a decision to make, look to the Word of God and the Spirit's use of the Word of God in you to bring clarity to that decision. There's a there, maybe. There's a, a difficult conversation that you need to have. Maybe a, a discipline situation with my with my child has come up. Someone's not happy with something that I've done. Maybe I've just seen something online that I'm not happy with. It. It's riling me up. Maybe a Christian brother or sister has done something that rubs me the wrong way. God, would you help me to walk by the Spirit in this situation? Would you help? the Spirit's fruit to be worked into me here, not my flesh's work to be evidenced here. The Spirit's intending to use the word of God to develop the fruit that he intends in us, keeping in step with the Spirit's use of the word. Verse 26, Beware of pride. Verse 26, he gets back to the flesh's works that he's mentioned a lot of earlier in this particular passage. He's also mentioned this in verse 15. And he mentions it again. More of the flesh's work that that promotes disunity and fighting amongst one another. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Which in the context of this book is exactly what the Judaizers' legalism was stirring up, was, was actually encouraging the Judaizers tendency to performing a good work will lead to a pretty high opinion of myself and not of God. And so there's these believers, these young Gentile believers, they were trying to wrestle with this and I can't even measure up to their standard. And so there's, it's this, it's this division that's starting to be um, promoted. And, and it also encourages conceit, a high opinion of myself this self-perceived righteousness, this know-it-all mentality is going to inevitably lead to stirring up these problems, provoking one another, envying one another, vying for position within a church. Those are works of the flesh that are wrought, that have in some sense a root in a legalistic view of the Christian life. And it also could be true that Paul has in mind that if you are more and more walking by the Spirit, there might be a a subtle tendency toward being maybe a little proud about your cluster of fruit that's getting bigger and bigger and looking better and better. There's a tendency in all of us to look to our good works as making us better than one another, to be proud about my spiritual growth. And so Paul says, beware of that pride that could creep in as a result of that. So, In conclusion, God has given us a command. Go along with the Spirit. Go along with the Spirit's use of the word that he breathed out in the first place. He's going to help you by bringing it to mind. If you're setting your mind on it, go along with the Spirit's use of the word and not your flesh. So that's the question for us then. Are we going along with the Spirit's use of the word in our hearts, in our lives? When life is happening? Are we going along with the Spirit's conviction, the Spirit's use of the word? We know what is right. Are we going along with that? Are we keeping in step with the Spirit? Or are we just going ahead and barging through what he said, no, we shouldn't do? Are we going ahead and, and not doing what we know we ought to do? Go along with the Spirit's use of the word in your heart. Now, how would you know if you are doing that? That's part of what Paul is addressing here. What characterizes your life? What has Paul given us as a diagnosis? The works of the flesh. If you're you're looking to those good works to gain favor with God, you'll find more and more works of the flesh evidencing themselves to the point that maybe it's right to ask yourself, am I even truly a child of God? If the works of the flesh More and more characterize me. There's not conviction about them, but that's just what I do. Is that that the work of the flesh? Are you looking to good works for affirmation? If you're looking for good works for affirmation, inevitably you will end up more and more evidencing those works of the flesh. If you're looking to yourself for strength in the Christian life... You will find that you can't keep the law in your own strength. It's impossible. You'll find yourself more and more and more giving into the works of the flesh. Instead, are you going along with the Spirit's use of the word in your heart and life to freely live as unto Christ? That will have evidences as well. The work of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. That is what evidences that we do have new life and that the Spirit himself is the one who enables us to live the Christian life that we ought to. Are we going along with the Spirit's use of the word in our hearts and in our lives? Let's pray. Father, you, by your Spirit, have breathed out your word. And if we're your own, you have given us an indwelling Holy Spirit that that has a yearning to call out to God our Father. That is by your Spirit that we would want to call out to him for help in temptation and trial. We thank you for the indwelling Spirit. I pray that you would help us to more and more consistently go along with his use of the word in our hearts. Would you help us to, to have the word in our hearts that the spirit could wield it with might in our hearts? We need your grace. I pray that you would help us to, when, when there is goodness happening in our lives, would we be ever thankful for the spirit doing that in us? Would we be pointing back to you as the one who is working that fruit in us? Would you, would you keep us from pride? Would you keep us from wanting to impose our own version of what we ought to be doing on others? Would you give us a humility that is thankful for the Spirit's work and that is dependent on the Spirit's work? We need you to do that in us. And we know that if you do that, which we know is your will, that this church, that we ourselves individually will look more and more like Christ. And we pray that together in Christ's name. Well, let's close out our time um, and uh, let's sing the first two stanzas of that first hymn that we sang. May the mind of Christ by the Spirit work in in us, and then may the word of Christ uh, dwell in us richly. Let's stand and we'll just sing those two stanzas.